This week, I'm talking with Rebecca Cameron, small business owner and former Australian Federal Police Officer. Growing up on the South Coast, Rebecca was actively involved in the community through youth exchange and other service club activities. Rebecca joined the Australian Federal Police, the AFP, in 1990. During this time, Rebecca worked in general duties, legal and HR, as well as driver training and recruit training. Rebecca also spent three years in East Timor, initially as a peacekeeper with the Echo Riot team in 2001, and returning for a joint capacity building program with AusAid in 2004 to 2005. Rebecca specialised in competency-based training development and wrote many of the core competencies still in use as part of the AFP's recruit training program. Deciding on a sea change in 2009, Rebecca returned home to Milton on the New South Wales South Coast. Initially running two successful retail businesses, employing 10 plus staff before purchasing a real estate business and now pursuing her love of ethical retail sales through a joint venture entitled The Fig Tree Forest. An avid supporter and occasional dabbler in the arts, music, politics and the environment, Rebecca is passionate about our local area and continues to be actively involved in a range of community groups and charitable causes. It was fantastic to get an insight into some of the great work Rebecca has done over the years, training others through experiential education and building communities as a result. I'm here today with Rebecca Cameron, who has a wealth of experience in education, training, field work and entrepreneurship. Thank you for talking with us today, Rebecca. You have a quite fascinating and diverse range of experiences that have spanned policing, education, politics and business. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick overview of the work that you've done? Okay, so if I, um, I go back to probably when I first joined the AFP and I was 19. So I, I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales and I joined the AFP in 1990 and I was one of two women on my recruit course. Um, I did four months of training with the AFP and, and look, the AFP... Um, has dual roles in in Australia in the sense that it has a, a policing agreement in the ACT to provide uniform policing, um, general duties as you would see in any other state in the country. And it also provides a national investigations role and an international investigations role. So we have, you know, um, officers in every capital city and then liaison posts across the world. Um, interestingly, the AFP is also the only organisation in Australia, policing organisation, that provides peacekeepers to the UN. So um, my initial career started working in general duties in the ACT. So I worked in uniform, um, starting off in beat squad in, in the early 90s, uh, which is basically foot patrol of the city areas and a lot of night shifts. So a lot of drunks and a lot of arrests and that type of thing. Um, and I went on to work in a number of policy areas after that. So I was, um, I worked on John Howard's gun buyback policies. So I worked on that, which I was very proud of. And after 10 years, which is generally the, the cutoff when you're allowed to actually apply for a UN position, I applied to go to East Timor in 1999 and 2000. Um, so I, was accepted into the third contingent that went into Timor, which was after the initial withdrawal um, of, of the Indonesians, after they voted 85% for independence. 
so I uh, went across as, a, again, outnumbered. I think there were two women on the contingent of 100. So I, I went across in uh, late 2000 and um, went, was posted into Dilly Station and worked there in a riot team role, basically. The first few days I spent in general duties and decided that um, that wasn't for me for a number of reasons. And so, uh, and then I worked in a riot team of about 30 international police. And our primary role was disarming uh, the various political factions leading up to the first democratic elections in Timor. So I worked, um, and at that time, because there was quite a great deal of unrest, I worked for eight months straight, seven days a week. No days off, they cancelled our leave. So it was long, hard, hot, sweaty, dirty work where we filled three shipping containers with uh, weapons before the first initial elections, which were quite successful with no real violence, which was our goal, was to keep it a peaceful um, situation. The thing with the Timorese is that they're quite passionate about their independence and their p political rights, and so you know they were quite vocal in the way that they protested, but we managed to keep everyone safe, which was good. When disarming that populace, was it mainly homemade sort of weapons? Was it illegal guns that have been smuggled over the border? Or what, what sort of things were you confiscating? Well, it was an interesting um, exercise, actually. We, we set up a lot of roadblocks. So we do roadblocks in the morning and the afternoon. And we also did a, a number of warrants over that period, arresting militia and had been accused of, of essentially war crimes during the period when the Indonesians withdrew and, and the period during their occupation. But the, the actual weapons that we were seizing um, were quite a, a large range. So it started from anything from katanas or, or machetes, although that was always a difficult thing because the machete was the tool that most Timorese use in their day-to-day -day work. They use them to cut down trees and cut coconuts and, um, you know, to harvest their fruit and vegetables. And so it was difficult to try and figure out where, what they were doing with it. But generally they, they understood that um, you couldn't carry these things around in the open and anyone who was doing that we'd confiscate it and they could come in, in the next few days and if they could demonstrate to us that they were using it as part of their job, well, they could have it back. But um, it wasn't just machetes. It was things like hand grenades, bows and arrows, um, makeshift slingshots. And uh, they used to make them... They were quite large things that were made out of the wire fencing um, that was left behind after the Indonesians left. And they had these lovely wrought iron fences around their houses. And the Timorese, being very industrious, <laughs> necessity being the mother of invention, would cut them up and make these slingshots out of them with very, very large elastic bands. And they could fire a, a metal arrow through a car door. So they were quite effective as a weapon. Um, so things like that. Um, guns, most of them were fairly primitive. A lot of them were handmade. Um, but they still worked. Um, knives, long arms, not very many of those, but um, a lot of them were just handmade. Um, and they could certainly inflict a lot of damage. And was this working with Timorese police? Were you training them on the job at the same time that you were providing this riot squad? Initially, no. So initially it was, pro it was just UN peacekeepers. Uh, and then we transitioned into a into a different period. So we went from sort of um, Umaset, Untayet to Umaset, which was a different sort of mission where it was more a capacity building 
program. So initially we, we kept the peace because the Timorese police were non-existent. The Indonesians during their occupation, they had, you know, the Timorese were allowed to work in some roles, but others they were restricted from. So when it came to actual governance and knowledge of governance, it was, it was fairly limited. So um, the second time I went back, so after the first initial posting, it was about a year, the second time I went back on a joint AFP AusAid funded program. It was a $40 million program that uh, extended over a number of years and that was primarily capacity building. So they didn't even have a police college. They had no police. Most of the police, either they were Indonesians or they were Timorese and they fled across the border to West Timor during um, the withdrawal period and they didn't come back. So we essentially had to train from the ground up in that program. So I was put with and a Timorese counterpart who was the head of the police college. And he'd had some policing experience um, prior to independence. So I worked with him in an advisory capacity, uh, which is a, an interesting role in the sense that police are problem solvers um, and they will go in and they will, they will fix whatever it is. Um, that's, it's part of, well, it's pretty much everything that you do. People call police because they, they've lost control of a situation or they don't know what to do. And they call you police, call the police and they expect you to take control and fix the problem. <laughs> so we're very good at that. We're yep. good doers. Whereas an advisor is a completely different role. Mm. You actually have to refrain from doing things. You have to make suggestions and, um, and recommendations or uh, you really have to take a step back. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, the way that business is done in Timor, like a lot of... Asian countries, it's, it's a different process and the fact that it could take you weeks to even get to a point of making a decision and a lot of that is having coffee and meeting for dinner and building relationships before you can even suggest an idea that then has to be theirs. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It, it, so it, it, it can be a difficult and a slow process and someone like me where I like to, I like to see progress, I like to see instant you know, solutions to problems. And yeah. It can be incredibly frustrating because it can I take can months. It's but almost like Jedi mind tricking them into exactly. making a decision. Exactly. It's very, very difficult. There was a slow process, but nonetheless, mm. I think we managed to train 500 Timorese police in the first year. Mm. And we did that through a, a model that I set up because I'd had some experience working at the police college and the AFP went to um, a competency-based training system in the late 90s. And uh, I went off and did some initial, you know, training and assessment qualifications through the ATO and a range of other things. And so I'd had a background in, in setting up training and looking at needs, training needs analysis and those sorts of things. Mm. This was pretty simple. I mean, we just didn't have any police. We were starting from absolute ground zero. Yeah. They didn't have computers. They didn't have a reliable power source. So modern policing was not the solution in this environment. So um, what I did was... I trained trainers first. So I chose, it was about 40 um, Timorese, pretty much a 50-50 mix of women and men who'd had previous policing experience. And I ran a train the trainers course during which they had to choose a policing topic and produce a training package for it and present it to the class and train the class. And that was their assessment. It was very simple. Mm. So each, each of those topics made up the actual recruit training course. So it was a bit of a holistic sort of approach is that we need to cover 
how to take notes in your notebook. We need to cover um, use of force training. We need to cover, so all of those subjects were given out to these, each of these 40 people. And so at the end of that Train the Trainers course, we had a, a training package for recruits and we had the instructors. So after that initial three months, it took about three or four months to get it off the ground. And then we started running police training. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, it wasn't without fault and without error. And it was a, a really steep learning curve for all of us. But um, at least we, they actually did the work. They built the course from the ground up. Mm. Um, they did it for an environment that suited them and not us. The problem with the UN previous to that, where they were trying to train um, police to take over the roles that they are in, was that being the UN, the nature of the UN, you have people from all over the world and every policing agency is different. I mean, in the US, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of policing agencies and they all have different policies and approaches yeah. to training. So when you look at that, um, the poor two Marie's were being given conflicting information on a daily basis. Yeah. So this is why they needed to build it for themselves. Yeah. Now that program is, is still running and they've now got a couple of thousand police that, that operate in Timor and, um, and they operate and train in accordance with their own environment. Um, as I said, there's no point giving them forensics training, for example, because there's no way of really... You can take DNA samples off people, but you can't keep them. Mm. Especially if you're in the mountains, you need to keep them in a refrigerator. Yeah. If you don't have power, you can't keep them in a refrigerator. No. So it's simple things like that. So we went right back to the basics, sort of 50s, 60s policing in Australia where we had notebooks and witness statements and they're all taken by hand. Um, and the legal system is different as well. It's, it's under the Portuguese model, which is an inquisitory system. So it's completely different to what we have as well. So it really needed to be built by them. And would that have been the biggest challenge, just that trying to translate what your policing experience in Australia was versus this multitude of different... It, that, that probably was the most difficult thing and I, I think I've said before that it, it took probably four, four or five months for me to even, after hitting the ground initially, to work out how things operated. Um, just watching and observing and, and finding out that it was completely different. The use of force continuum was completely different. Um, and an example of that would be when I uh, was working in a, in a policing role there, I was working with a Portuguese fellow and uh, there was a day when we were confronted with a particularly violent situation and a number of offenders, 20, more than 20 offenders, all armed and all attacking an individual. And I... In Australia, um, you'd call for backup and you'd cordon and contain that situation. But the first thing to do is to, of course, protect life. And that person that they were attacking was going to die. Mm. And so for me, in a very simple way, that's, that's a gun day. Yeah. So that's a gun day. And my Portuguese counterpart went completely the other way. He'd been in Timor about 12 months longer than me. And he took his baton out and approached them with his baton and used his baton to disarm a number of them and get them to lie down on the ground. Because Timorese people aren't big. Mm. They're, they're quite small. And I had my gun out and I put it away and I did the same. I copied him. I took my baton out and I started to put physically put my hands on people and put them on the ground. Some ran away. Some were arrested. Um, some refused to lie on the ground. And we had to physically push them down onto the ground. But um, later on I said to him, why didn't you take out your firearm? And we had, we had Glocks, we were armed with Glocks there and we had, they hold, you know, 20 odd rounds and we had several backups for that as well. 
And he just said, I didn't have enough bullets. I said, there's only 20 of them. You've got more than 20 bullets. And he said, no, if I shoot them, more will come. Mm. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of looking at that. And he was right. Yeah. He was definitely right, the way that that would have worked. And we would have been killed with stones because yeah. there's plenty of them. And mm. that's the first thing that Timorese do in a conflict where they start to get afraid. They all pick up rocks and start to throw them. Yeah. And uh, you can cause a lot of damage with a rock. And I, I was wearing quite a lot of protective equipment, but not enough to protect me from hundreds of people throwing rocks at me yeah. without backup. Backup was very rare. Um, it yeah. just You were on your own most of the time. So um, I thought that that was a, a very sensible approach and not one that I would use in Australia. Yeah. So you have to look at it from a different way. And with the patrols, were, were there just generally two of you doing a patrol and in a vehicle yes. or on foot or both? Look, it was pretty rare that we'd do it on foot unless at night we were looking for somebody um, where we'd get out and it was almost virtually impossible to find anyone at night anyway because it's pitch black, there's no street lights. Um, and there's so many hiding places that there's just no way you could find anyone. But uh, we did work um, two up in patrols. I worked initially when I spent the first week in general duties, I worked on a, a three-person patrol with two other men. One was Nepalese and uh, another fellow was Pakistani. And neither of them had been police in their former careers from their own countries. Um, they pulled whatever strings they could pull and, and managed to, to get these roles, which are, of course is understandable for people coming from third world countries in the sense that you get paid $95 US a day to work um, with a UN in Timor at that time. And uh, that amount of money for someone coming from Nepal or Senegal, it's like winning the lotto. Even if you're there for six months, I, I used to say to my Senegalese counterparts, so what are you going to do when you go home? And they'd say, I, I'm going to buy a Mercedes for every person in my family and, and, and houses and I'm going to retire. So you can understand why um, they would really go to really quite extreme lengths to be able to get a posting yeah. um, with the UN. And um, as, as I said, not everyone is necessarily police. They might mm. have come from the Air Force or the Army or something like that. So their policing experience was limited. So I... Um, after a week working with these fellows that weren't police and seeing what I was going into, I decided that I wasn't going to be safe yeah. working in that environment. And so I went back to the station commander and said, where can I go where people won't want run away, basically, <laughs> and leave me in the middle of nowhere, which it had happened a few times. And uh, he put me on. He said, well, the only place you can go is the ECHO team, which is the right team. Yeah. So I worked one up initially with a Portuguese guy and then I worked with an Australian guy for a while. We worked, we had a team of 30 um, and we did work together a lot of that time. So we might split into two teams, 15 in each, and conduct roadblocks on either side of town. And so we had plenty of backup behind us. Um, we also had the GNR, which is a Portuguese army, specialist army unit that were based there that would back us up in, area, in times when you'd have a lot of people riding, so a couple of hundred, and that we were outnumbered. And so they would come and back us up, and they actually had long arms and um, automatic weapons, and they were quite terrifying, extremely fit. Um, but we tended to manage more often than not without them. The Australian Army was also there as well, but they were in a capacity building um, role at that time when I was there. So they'd taken a step back from that actual um, control situation and into, because, you know, Australian Army aren't peacekeepers. They're Army. Yeah. Their the rules of engagement are completely different mm. to ours. So it wasn't appropriate to have them in that role. When riots kicked off, were there any 
factors that were similar? Were they caused by similar things or was it just the conflict between different gangs? Timor, as I said, quite passionate about democracy and, um, and their independence. And they fought really hard for it. I mean, they were occupied for, what, 25-odd years and during that time they estimated 25% of the population disappeared mm. um, or were killed or otherwise fled and never came back. And that's, you know, one in every four people. And, you know, it's, that's a significant amount. It's pretty much every person you talk to had lost someone during that period. And, and they were still very passionate about their independence. So when they did gain their independence, it was like 87% or something voted for independence. Of course, you had all these people waiting in the wings that just wanted, wanted to be the ruler. And interestingly enough, in the first few years that I was there, universities um, started to crop up. And you don't... There's different rules there than here, as anyone can pretty much open a university there. Yeah. And so they'd crop up all over the place. And you talk to every single student, they were all studying politics. They weren't studying the subjects that they really needed to, like engineering or medicine. Or they all wanted to be the leader, which is, which is great. But um, by the same token, it's not necessarily what the country needs. But um, I, I would expect that it's different now. But uh, there are four or five prominent political parties. And um, obviously, they had factions within them. And then they fought each other as well. And so, but there's also a long-running East-West Timor issue going on. And, and there's factions within that as well. So... Um, Half the time, it was very difficult to identify where um, the disturbances are coming from, why they were why they were fighting each other. Sometimes it was as simple as, as a young girl, for example, had passed away playing soccer on a on a Sunday afternoon. We went to investigate. We were called because there was a disturbance, and there was probably a couple of hundred people throwing rocks at each other and setting fire to each other's houses and that sort of thing. And uh, it was one side of the community that accused the other side of the community that their witch had put a curse on this girl and, uh, and, and she had died as a result. Eventually, we, we managed to get an autopsy done and it turned out that she had a tapeworm that was about 10 metres long inside her stomach and she died yeah. of heart failure. Yeah. But, you know, they just made the assumption that something bad, that the other tribe, for example, had done mm. something bad to her and that 98% of, of Timorese are Catholics. Mm. Um, but that aside, they still have some, some core animist beliefs and that can be the cause of conflict as well. Um, sometimes you'd have people in the community that were convinced that, you know, someone was militia as part of that during the occupation and, um, and um, they'd exact their own justice on these people and then you'd have infighting and and paybacks and that sort of thing yeah. happening as well. So a lot of the time it was just the run-of-the-mill stuff that you get in Australia. Mm. Neighbours fighting or people stealing stuff and people taking the law into their own hands. Adaptability seems to be quite important quality to have and problem-solving. So yes. what are some other qualities from your training experience and from your work experience? Mm. What are some of the really good qualities of, of an officer? It's a really interesting question, actually. I think that um, after spending 20 years in the AFP, uh, when I was looking to leave, and I think after a while you tend to get a little bit jaded, and I, I was working in training at the time, and I just felt that it was really important that I moved on because when you have contact with young people who are so keen and think the organisation is a wonderful thing and you've been around it for so long that you've worked out it, then all those little nooks and crannies and it's not that, it's not that good after all, 
And so I decided that instead of being one of those crusty old cranky sergeants that I'd move on. But um, I did think at the time about the fact that policing perhaps hadn't qualified me to do anything. When in, in actual fact it had done the opposite. There's inherent skills in policing that, um, that are so useful in a range of other trades and jobs and and professions and, and I think probably one of the biggest things was was the ability to, to manage expectations and you're doing that every day you're managing expectations whether I was in Timor or whether I was working in uniform or no matter where I went it's, it's about managing people's expectations of what you can and can't do and what they can and can't do. The ability to communicate with people and listen and observe are really really important skills and I can pretty much now look at someone and I can tell what frame of mind they're in. I have this terrible habit of when I go to restaurants or cafes of sitting in the corner looking out so I can see everything because it's just a habit and I will know whatever is going on in a room. It drives my mother and, and, my, and my husband crazy. Well, he's a bit the same as me. And the fact that, you know, when such and such next to you on the table, when they got their dinner, what time and what they ordered and whether they liked it or not and what, what conversation they're having because you're just trained to have a, a heightened sense of awareness of what's yeah. happening around you, which can be infuriating for anyone who actually wants to engage you in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's those communication skills that I think are applicable across every professional career. In real estate, for example, in the last four years I've been working in real estate I often joke that I went from the most trusted profession to the least trusted profession. But in that, it's, it's all about managing expectations. Mm. It's all about communicating. Those two things, that for, to be a good salesperson or you know, good in that particular business, is all about listening to what people want and, um, and then thinking about how you can achieve that for them and, um, and those communication skills. I can talk to anybody, no matter what their background. And... Even people from different races and cultures, and I, uh, they often say to me that you're so easy to understand. I can really, I can't understand anyone else, but I can understand you. And it's, it's about how you speak and 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 how you communicate with those people and how you listen. A lot of people say I can't understand them. They're not speaking English. I say, yeah, they are. You just need to really listen, and listen with everything, not just your ears. Communication is changing quite a bit in the last few years, especially in the digital world. Do you see that detracting from real relationships? Oh, of course. I, I think that um, those skills that I talked about, about how to read people and how to listen to people, I think uh, are incredibly important no matter what job you're in. And uh, if you've got your head down looking at a phone and you're not looking around, if you've not got that sense of awareness of what's happening around you, I think that that's an incredibly sad thing, actually. But, I mean, there's no doubt that the digital age has, has been an incredible benefit, particularly in policing. Um, our ability to track our patrol cars, uh, about where they are with GPS and everything else. I mean, in the old days, I'd have to, if we had a job on the other side of town and I wasn't really familiar with it, um, I'd have to get the map out and I'd have to read the map. And it, it's not always a perfect science. But these days, you know, when communications give a job to a patrol car, mm. the address comes up on their screen. It automatically does a background check on the house. It's, I mean, computers, so they've got onboard computers. And the, what they, the information that they have at their fingertips, it's, it's got to be better yeah. for policing. It's mm. got to be a significant benefit. But... By the same token, you've got young police that are growing up in a digital age and that perhaps their observation skills aren't what they used to be. You know, from, a, from my policing perspective, we had 
old sergeants that could remember number plates, had eidetic memories that could remember number plates. You could be driving around in Canberra, a population of 300,000 people, and they'd look at a car and go, that's stolen. <laughs> I mean, these days you have a computer that does it for you. But, uh, you know, that's, that's just remarkable. Yeah, that's um, phenomenal. It memory. is absolutely amazing. So you'd, you'd have, you know, coppers with those skills which are quite beneficial. And the reliance on technology isn't always the solution either. I think that um, that old-fashioned talking to people and sitting down and, I mean, you'd get calls for burglaries at old ladies' houses and they hadn't had a burglary. They were just lonely. Mm. They'd have the teapot ready when you knocked at the door. <laughs> Um, and I think that building those relationships and when we come to talk about politics and, um, and communities and uh, that sort of thing, I think that the old-fashioned way is the best. Mm. Social media is wonderful, but you can have 300 friends on social media and still feel alone. Mm. And I think in communities, and police aren't just there to you know, catch the bad guys. It's not just about that. Um, it's also about building relationships with young people in your community and, and keeping an eye on things and just being aware of what's happening around you. It's having that sense of security without necessarily that direct involvement of, of law enforcement. Look, I think that um, the days of... In the last few years when I, I used to get young recruits and they'd come out of the college and come work with me on patrol and i get two or three at a time and I was sort of that stopgap between, you know, leaving the college and really green and I'd get them for three to six months and then they'd go off and they, they could work one up or and, and work effectively. And I used to get these young kids and they hated the fact that I used to make them get out of the car and walk around town. Um, we do it every day for two or three hours. And I'd, I'd say, I want you to go and introduce yourself to people on the street. I want you to go in and talk to the shopkeepers. I want you to go and do that old-fashioned policing and it doesn't matter what job you're in you can be a politician or a police officer or a business person or whatever it is that you do that in real estate door knocking is still the most effective way of building relationships and listing properties mm. just knocking on someone's door saying hi I'm Beck mm. I've just sold a house a couple of doors down and there were a few people that missed out and um, if you if you know of anyone or if you're thinking about selling I'd love to come and give you a free appraisal and that kind of stuff is you know, really, really important, not just for real estate, police, politicians, everyone. From a training point of view, do you see that as one of the key components to, say, the training that you did at the, the academy? Yes. And, um, you know, I think that from a training perspective, of course you need to have grounding in, in law. You need to understand the elements of law and, and what actually... You need to identify an offence. Mm. So you need to do those things. But... You also need to ask a lot of questions to ascertain whether actually an offence has occurred. And talking to people is a skill that... And you have to ask people really uncomfortable questions sometimes. And that can be really difficult, especially when you're 19 or 20, when you're quite young and you go to someone's house and they've, they've got a domestic violence issue and you need to talk to these people about their marriage. And, you know, a lot of the time... It was really difficult for me when I was young because I could say, oh, look, you know, I understand the situation. And they'd look at me and go, no, you don't. You're not married. You don't have, like, three kids and a mortgage and all those sorts of things. And it, it is, it, that was really quite difficult. But, I mean, as you, as you move on, you get better at it. But it, it was all about asking those questions and, um, and building those relationships, uh, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, how questions that, yeah. that you're taught in in college, you're taught to ask all of these questions and, um, and open-ended questions and there's a particular way you need to communicate to get where you need to go. Throughout your time either in Timor or in Australia 
training recruits and training the police force. Was there ever a standout moment or an aha moment where something happened, either good or bad, where it was just this, this is a really good learning experience, whether it was an, out of a negative experience or a really positive thing that you saw? Oh, look, there's dozens of them, but um, there, there's a couple, and, and you know, police use, we call them warries. Police use warries a lot in training because it gives, it gives a recruit or a student a hook to hang their knowledge on. So and we as human beings, I think, learn through stories and through storytelling. Mm. And um, so whilst you can teach the foundations of law and, and evidence and all of those technical subjects, you, most of those subjects that we delivered, we had a story that went along with them. Some of the most difficult things and some of the, the biggest learning experiences I had were those where you make an assumption in a particular situation and your assumption is wrong. And um, more often than not, that was in mental health situations. And it's quite tragic for everyone involved in those situations in dealing with mental health. And I think the Richmond, the Richmond Review, when we went through and shut down a lot of institutions in the 80s and 90s, and Kenmore in Goulburn is, probably comes to mind, um, when we closed them, a lot of the people in those institutions really couldn't be anywhere else. Mm. But nonetheless, they went into communities and went into sort of assisted, assisted living and unfortunately, police are generally on the front line and deal with these issues. They, they, they're not coping with living in normal society. Something happens and, you know, we usually are there to pick up the pieces. And there was, a, there was one particular story where I, as a well-known fellow in the middle of Canberra who lived in government housing, very close to the... the civic centre, the middle of Canberra. And he had paranoid schizophrenia and a number of other mental health issues. And we dealt with him pretty much on a weekly basis. Mm. And sometimes he was all right. And sometimes he was completely off the rails and incredibly aggressive and, and quite frightening. This particular day, he had in his head, he was in a relationship with a girl living in this flat. They had an argument and he'd decided in his way that she was seeing someone else. And whether she was, I don't know but it was quite violent. She'd locked herself in the flat and uh, I was working on my own foot patrol. In those days, in the early 90s, um, you did tend to work one up on occasions. Um, and so I was sent to this job and when I got there, I could hear him and it was on the first floor and he was kicking this door. It was quite a solid reinforced door in, in really old building and a big solid door, wooden door. And so at this stage, I think he'd probably been kicking it for about five minutes and hadn't given in, but he wasn't gonna stop. Mm. And so I got there and I, um, being on my own, I called for backup and there was none available. They were all busy. A normal reaction of police officers is to stop him from doing that. And you'd probably have to go hands on and handcuff him because he's out of control. I watched him for about 30 seconds and I figured that he wasn't going to get in. So I just let him keep going. And I didn't even say anything. I stood about five metres away and I just waited. And eventually he got really tired. Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, I said to him, have you finished? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you're going to have to come with me. He goes, yeah, all right. And he came with me. And that was that just waiting yeah. and watching and just being patient in that situation and figure out, you know, you're like, there's an old adage, you never run to a fight. Yeah. And it's true because you get there and you're tired or, or you're out of breath and you might have to fight some more. So you don't run to a fight. And in that situation, I, I, I didn't run. I just sat and waited until he wore himself out. And I figured it was much cheaper to replace a door 
I should mention that she wasn't there. Yeah. She'd gone out the window. So she was gone. So yeah. she, there was no yeah. one going to be injured. Yeah. And I just made that decision. And so, um, I mean, there's lots of situations like that where I've, I've thought, oh, even though my training says I should do this, you know, protect life and property, in this situation I'd rather, you know, have someone pay $200 to replace a door than to get hurt by this guy because he was really off the deep end. Yeah. So, and a lot of, there was a lot of those situations with mental health. And I, I did have to lie to someone once and I, I was very uncomfortable with it. And he also had a mental health problem and he was sitting in a room in the dark, like midnight, and he was quite frightening. You could, just one look at him and you knew that he was not a well man mm. and he was really skating on the edge. And he was sitting next to the most bizarre thing. It was a big sort of drum next to him full of baseball bats. I'd never seen anything like yeah. that. He must have collected them <laughs> or something. But I, um, and he had a blue healer dog sitting with him. And his mother had called us because he'd threatened to kill her and he'd smashed all the windows in the house and he'd really lost it. By the time we got there, he was sitting in this chair next mm. to these baseball bats. And uh, I said to him, you know, we're going to take you for a drive. We're going to take you home to get him in the back of the car. So um, he said, can I take the dog? Yep, of course you can take the dog. So I let him take the dog in the back of the police car, which we never did. And um, I actually said to him that we were going to take him somewhere else, but we weren't taking him somewhere else. We were taking him back to the police station to put him in a padded cell. And so I lied and I felt really uncomfortable about that. But um, I figured again, it was the best approach to that situation. Mm. And it was, we didn't get hurt. Yeah. It took six men to get him out of the back of the car when yeah. we got there because yeah. he didn't want to get out and the dog had to go somewhere else. But um, I figured it was safer. Yeah. Otherwise, I may have had to shoot him. Yeah. And that, back then, we didn't have capsicum spray or tasers or any of those things. And mm. people often say, oh, well, why can't you just shoot them in the leg? And it's, you know, it's quite a common um, response from people about police shooting mental health victims and I, my response is, well, police are trained to shoot centre body mass, mm. the biggest area of the target, because when you're stressed, that's, you've got to shoot for the biggest thing, because if you yeah. miss, you could shoot someone else. Oh, exactly. Um, and the goal is to stop it, you know, you, you only ever resort to that in absolute extreme cases, and so I can't just shoot them in the leg. I'm a terrible shot anyway. <laughs> I, there's no way I could aim for a leg and actually hit it. So <laughs> be very hard. It wasn't a solution. Yeah. But that's, that's very similar to what the Portuguese officer, what his approach was back in East Timor. It's mm. adapting to that current situation yep. to ensure the best outcome and the safest outcome. Exactly. And that's the difference between policing and, um, you know, from a peacekeeping perspective and actual soldiers or army on the ground, is that police are trained not just to shoot everything, to shoot to kill. Mm. You know, not everyone is a combatant from a policing perspective and you actually have to do quite a lot of thinking which is unfortunate because in some situations you might only have a few seconds to make a decision, um, which is then examined for years and years in courts afterwards. Mm. So it, it is very, very difficult. I mean, you carry a lot of weight around with you with, with carrying that power, which is why I welcome capsicum spray and, and tasers and those other methods of subduing subjects. Mm. They're not always, they don't always work, particularly in these days with ice, but it, at least it gives you other options. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for sharing some of your story and thank you for your service. It's an amazing experience that you've had both in Australia and overseas. So thank you for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. Thanks, David. That was Rebecca Cameron, former AFP officer, business owner and advocate for the local community. For more information on East Timor and Australia's involvement 
check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave a nice review. It helps others to find the podcast and helps me to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let me know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us next week as we explore more great opportunities for experiential education.